Welcome to another episode of Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM, where we dissect topics and issues relating to life in veterinary school. I'm your host, Seth Williams, and I'm a veterinary student at the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. All right, raise your hand if you've ever been in a job, a class, pretty much anywhere where you've interacted with someone that has been, uh, let's just say, difficult to work with. I'm sure we can all think back to a job or even a group project or a veterinary practice that we've been involved in where you've got that one person that is uh, just a jerk. So toxic behaviors in the workplace can be a problem in really any profession and vet med and veterinary school is certainly no exception. So since I think we can assume we will always be encountering these difficult people throughout our career, what can we do to identify problems like this and improve them so that we can make our environment much, much more friendly, productive, and positive for everyone that's involved. So to help us answer these questions and to dive into this topic a lot deeper, I want to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sydney Courtney. Dr. Courtney has a passion for this topic and has done tons of work to help us in the veterinary field address the issue so that we can make veterinary medicine culture even better. Dr. Courtney is a small animal veterinarian that lives in Lawrence, Kansas, and she graduated from vet school in 2013 from the Virginia, Maryland Regional College of Vet Med at Virginia Tech. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Courtney. How's it going today? It's going really well. I had a beautiful drive out to Columbia and a great meeting with the VBMA officers, and it's great to finally meet you in I person. I know, finally Seth. putting a, a face to the to the emails and, and a face to your voice, because I'm a big fan of your your podcast, which I definitely want to talk about a bit later. But um, but again, thank you so much for, for coming out and coming to Mizzou to talk to VBMA and and coming to talk to me. Absolutely. And thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know today is your first day in clinics. So. Yep. It was a big day uh, and a really good day. So um, yeah, very excited for what's to come over the next two years and, and then beyond. So yeah, it was awesome. Absolutely. it's There's nothing like clinics and finally getting hands-on with some patients and some clients. Right. Definitely. So again, thank you for coming on and talking about this topic with me. The first thing I want to get on the table is... A little bit about yourself. Where'd you go, where are you from? Where'd you go to vet school? Who are you? Absolutely. So I graduated in 2011 from the Virginia, Maryland Regional College of Veterinary Medicine, basically Virginia Tech, but right. we do get to share that with the Maryland folks over there. So I practiced for four years in Northern Virginia and then moved out to the town where I met my husband back to Lawrence, Kansas. And now I practice just south of Kansas City in Grandview, Missouri and with a wonderful, wonderful team, but uh, have kind of some some things I get to do on the side that keep mm-hmm. things interesting. Awesome. And primarily small animal? Yes, yes. So I work with dogs and cats. We do see some exotics at the practice. One of my colleagues sees most of them, but I get to help out from time to time too. Cool. Now, I know one of those side projects, if you will, that you work on, something that you're really passionate about, is is this topic of of difficult people in the workplace, toxic relationships, and that and that sort of thing. I know one of your projects is the Jerk Researcher. Yeah, so I have thejerkresearcher.com, and a lot of people will ask me, like, what the heck does that mean? Or they think it's an acronym for something. I'm like, no, I, I just like figuring out why people are mean to each other right. and how we can make the world a better place. Right, definitely. So I want to know, what have you found or, or what applies with that space, if you will, in the veterinary profession. Absolutely. And how I kind of started down this journey was I think so many of us, when we're involved in veterinary medicine as assistants or when we're getting experience before we go to vet school, we see interactions that we're not so fond of. Mm -hmm. We see negative interactions and we think to ourselves, 
well, I'll never find myself in that position or I'll never be the veterinarian being harsh with nurses. And, and none of us wants to ever be in that position. And when I graduated and was in my first year of practice, there was a moment where all of a sudden I was trying to critique a veterinary nurse on the way that they were giving propofol because I was a little concerned that they were pushing it all at once. Mm-hmm. And the veterinary nurse went running out of the room crying. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I've become that veterinarian. Right. And it was really scary. And uh, thankfully, my team came to me and kind of talked about what was going on. And I had the chance to be self-reflective about what was happening and figure out strategies to stop acting in these ways and came to understand that a lot of this was a result of stress that mm-hmm. I was going under and trying to find a place to put all that stress. And we talk about depression and anxiety as a result of burnout in our profession, but we really don't talk about aggression or you know, blaming other people as a result of burnout too. And it, it seems to be people split on one side or the other. There's mm-hmm. actually data to suggest that those who are highly confident tend to be confident because they have an external locus of control. So they tend to think the bad things that happen to them are the cause are caused by other people. Right. And so when bad things happen, they tend to kind of push that outward and say, well, it must be somebody else's fault. Right. And if you're in a position of power, that means you're going to turn to the people you work with and say, hey, what did you do wrong? Mm-hmm. And we all have to be responsible for our effect on on those around us. And so when you go into practice for the first time and it's stressful and now you're in a position of leadership where maybe you didn't have that much authority over other folks before, you can fall into habits that can potentially be harmful. So I think we need to understand more about this, learn more about it so we can can help all these new graduates who are going to be out there being leaders in the profession. Definitely, definitely. So, you know, kind of like in the first step of the 12 step program, I guess the first step is recognizing that there's a problem. How do you or what do you do to go about recognizing that being it being that in yourself or in a team member? What's the first step in, in figuring that you have an issue with this? Absolutely. So and I think it can be hard because when you have that external locus of control, And even when you turn to your friends and tell them about what's going on, often they'll say, oh, that person overreacted. Or for me, in some cases, people even say, oh, well, you're just an assertive woman, so it Mm -hmm. has to do with your gender. And I'm not saying that it never does, but over the course of my own lifetime, when this has happened over and over and over again, at some point you have to sit down and say, hey, maybe it's me. I think it's also important to keep in mind that we don't have as much control over other people as we do over ourselves. There's a great book called Thanks for the Feedback that points out that people in general have a hard time taking feedback. And Mm -hmm. if you choose to be the one that finds that kernel of truth that helps you do better, you probably have a a good step ahead of everybody else because they're they're not taking that advice and, and maybe you are. Right. So then once you've identified that there is some type of difficult relationship where there's a difficult person in the environment, what's the next step in addressing that? How do you do that without being yourself toxic or someone that's giving a negative vibe in the environment? Absolutely. And it's not always appropriate to confront that person. I know it's kind of tough to to think about that and to say, I see something negative that's going on, trying to figure out when is it and when is it not appropriate to confront that person. Mm -hmm. So there are some situations where it's definitely not appropriate to confront that person. So first, if the behavior seems obviously intentional, you're not probably going to change that 
person's behavior. If the behavior is something that's happened multiple times, and the person has had it addressed by somebody already and they're not changing, again, it's also unlikely that you're going to change that person's behavior. Additionally, if you don't feel safe with that person, whether that's physically or whether that's because that person's in charge of your job or your recommendation for your jobs coming out of vet school Mm -hmm. or your grade, it can be really intimidating and you're not going to feel safe having that confrontation. So I think it's also important for both us when we're owners and managers as well within veterinary schools to create safe places for folks to give that kind of feedback so people can change without being directly threatened by it. Um, If it is a situation where it's appropriate to confront somebody, I think it's important to have data. So not necessarily to accuse someone, not to tell them uh, to kind of assassinate their character Mm -hmm. and tell them that even though I'm the jerk researcher, we don't want to call people jerks. Right. We want to point out what behaviors are they doing that are harmful and what are the what's the outcome of that behavior? Because at its heart, most toxic behavior is also harmful to the person who's being toxic. Right. They're driving people away and that leaves people really lonely and that's not going to be good for them in the long run either. Definitely. So let's tie this in a little bit to vet school because yeah. I think that it... it certainly exists out in the mm-hmm. quote-unquote real world but yeah. it certainly exists in the vet school as as mm-hmm. i'm sure you remember as i definitely know yeah. currently so i wanted to ask if you can go back to your vet school days and try yeah. to remember an example of what you experienced in vet school with with jerks if you will toxic relationships yeah so i think there are two examples i want to pull from so one i'm going to be self-reflective because Mm -hmm. when you're the kind of person who discovers that you're acting in this way there's no magic bullet it's not like you suddenly change all of your behaviors at once and in fact attempting to do that can be harmful so it's actually more harmful for people if you act like a jerk half of the time and like a really nice person half of the time, that's actually more harmful in a work environment than if you're a jerk all the time because it has a lot to do with expectations. But um, when I was a student, say I went up to, I was one of those annoying people who went up to the, the, roster of scores and was like, Oh, where, where am I on that roster of scores? And I remember at one point, one of my fellow students kind of scoffed at that and kind of made some comment about how rude that was in kind of a side sly way. And looking back on it, I kind of almost wish she had come up to me directly and said, you know, hey, I appreciate that you care about how you're performing, but that also is kind of hurtful to people Mm -hmm. and kind of done that in a private way. So I think we can be toxic to each other, unfortunately. The data suggests that at least in human medical schools, a lot of toxicity and a lot of actually harassment and assault in different ways occurs, unfortunately, in this era that you're coming into, the clinical years, where um, the majority of medical students experience some kind of harassment, mostly verbal, but a small percentage, about 5%, will actually experience physical harassment as well. (laughs) And that's scary. That's scary stuff. Yeah. And personally, I remember a time when I went up to a professor because I had heard a podcast that cited some of his research and I wanted to ask him more questions about it. And the professor got very, very angry and basically felt like the behaviorist who had cited his research was not very intelligent and was taking his research out of context. Mm. And I remember never wanting to ask that professor any questions ever again. Right. And that also matches the data we have that shows that when 
we create learning spaces that are safe psychologically, they know in junior surgeons that actually helps them learn faster and helps them learn better. Hmm. So I think it's important for us to to think about these learning spaces and think about whether they're safe places for us to learn because we'll learn better when we feel safe. Right. I think an important thing that I'm just thinking of now is that whatever, like in the example you gave of, of you looking out for yourself in terms of your progress with your academics back in, in your first couple of years of, of the didactic portion of vet mm-hmm. school, you aren't trying, you're not intending no. to do anything mm-hmm. that is mean or harmful to those around you. And I would imagine that more than nine times out of 10, if someone is being difficult to work with, they're not doing it intentionally. Absolutely. And there's actually numbers behind that. Mm -hmm. It's less than 14% of people in workplaces are doing anything harmful intentionally. Right. And on top of that, 25% of people who are acting harmfully are doing it simply because they didn't know what was expected of them. Right. So they didn't know what the culture of their workplace was. They didn't know what was polite. Um, I joke with my husband that he's from Massachusetts and I'm from Virginia, so our definitions of what's polite right. are really different. <laughs> I can so imagine. I want to say please and thank you. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. So. So I think that's an important thing to learn. And we have data that shows that if you do talk with people, especially if managers talk with people about these things and show them what is expected of them, the vast majority of people will try and change. Now, not everyone's going to follow through in the way they should, but those who follow up, especially with the people that they are hurting and figuring out if they're making progress, are really going to see improvement and see change. So I I think it's important to realize that Not everybody is stuck being that way forever, but we do also need to be cognizant of the cost to our cultures and to our businesses of leaving people, toxic people in these places who are not willing to change. Right. And and going back to thinking of an example, I, there are a couple that come to my mind, at least in my first two years of vet school, one of which is goes back to grades as well, which I know looking back now, now again, I'm officially a clinical student, so I'm... The grades are not as much of, of a critical part to my curriculum anymore, thank God. But I remember just last week that grades were like, it was like the end-all be-all of school, mm-hmm. which in hindsight, it's not. And I've talked about that a lot on the podcasts. And and usually anyone that you talk to is going to tell you that grades are not everything. Even so, grades are not the biggest part of vet school. It's about your learning, but we, that's a whole other topic. Anyways, my example is... You've get you've got people that will get their grades back and, and they'll talk about their their recent tests in the hallway or whatever that's natural to do, and they'll say I got a let's say an eighty eight percent, God I'm an idiot, and then you've got someone next to them maybe not in a different maybe in a different friend group or maybe they are their friend who is really struggling and a seventy percent mm-hmm. is great for them. Yeah. How do you think that makes them feel if if their friend who just got a high B is thinking that they have just nearly failed the exam when to you that's like, my gosh, that's barely attainable for me. How could you be saying that? You must think that I'm a total idiot. And that's really, it's happened to me before on on both sides, I would imagine. I mean, I know that it's happened to me, uh, or at least I've recognized it when I've done less well than my peers and, and they think they've done poorly and and I don't know how to how to address that both internally and with them any any tips on that yeah and as you're saying that one of the things that makes me think of is the fact that vet vet school classes tend to get reputations for different personalities at least Mm -hmm. they did at my school I'm guessing they do at Mizzou Mm -hmm. too and I wonder if 
these different classes are essentially ending up with different cultures and different Mm -hmm. expectations and different unspoken rules about what's polite and what's not. I remember meeting a Cornell student when I was on one of my rotations in my clinical year and he was talking about the gunners Mm -hmm. and I had no idea what he was talking about because my either, I don't know, maybe it was because I was a gunner, I don't know. But uh, (laughs) our class where I was at at Virginia Tech was very collaborative and the idea was we all help each other out because we're all going to be more successful if we have great peers out in the profession who are also really smart and also know their stuff. So overall, it was a pretty collaborative group. But that wasn't true necessarily of the classes on either side of us. So it's making me wonder, again, so much of civility and how we treat each other is tied to what we are told to do, what we expect from each other. And are there vet school etiquette rules that I never got any written down right. and maybe maybe we need some. Right. And I think, too, one of the maybe one of the problems with that in terms of building an environment that we would seem to be ideal, at least with social uh, social cues and just how we treat one another is the fact that the majority of the vet students don't have career experience outside of school. Mm-hmm. So they don't really have the experience to know what it should be like to to work or to to operate in a healthy social environment because they haven't had the opportunity to do that. Again, no fault to them because there just hasn't been any time. They went from high school to undergrad to vet school and that's it. And that's normal. Um, but I, f- I fear that the first time they're going to really get taught how to act socially in the most healthy and positive way is going to be when they are out of school or whether they're externing or wherever it's going to be. So I wonder if that may be one of the stems of the issues here is that we're not taught how to act professionally and, and in a positive manner. Yeah, and in the medical school community, they talk about the hidden curriculum. So they talk about what is being taught socially to the medical students. So their first job experience kind of is our clinical rotations, right? Mm -hmm. So how do our teachers treat us? And what is that going to teach us about how we teach those we work with in the future and how we treat them? And that is not always the greatest example. And how do we work? Should we work in ways that allow us to take time to sleep and eat and exercise? Because we know that people are more likely to act in toxic ways if they don't take the time to, to take care of themselves. So what is vet school teaching us about being healthy leaders when we go out into practice? And unfortunately, I think it's, it's not such healthy things. And what else are we taught culturally about being a veterinarian? Um, I recently read All Creatures Great and Small. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took a little while to get there. But if you go back and read that book, see how they treat each other and see how they treat their receptionist and bookkeeper. Hmm. They treat each other terribly. Yeah. And so what is this culture we're passing forward to the next group of veterinarians and how can we change that can we be role models for more positive environments um and that starts with taking care of ourselves so then we can turn around and take care of other people have you seen a difference in the types of cultures and and what we're talking about here in terms of our social interactions between the vet med world and the human medicine world i ask that because as i've discussed with with many veterinarians and mds and also on this podcast that I, i feel like a lot of the times the veterinary side is always 10 steps behind the human side, whether that's in our medical technology, um, treatments, bedside manner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Have you noticed any differences between the two in this topic? So it's interesting because 
I often talk to my clients about the fact that if there's a diagnosis we don't know about or if their pet has a vague condition or if they ask me a question and they say, could it be this that's causing this with my pet? A lot of times I have to say, well, it could be. I don't really know. That's not in line with our current medical understanding, but we've got to understand there are a lot fewer animal patients than there are human patients. Right. There's a lot less research money for veterinary medicine than there is for human medicine. So I think that's part of the explanation behind why that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other areas where, in some senses, we're ahead. They don't necessarily get as much information about zoonotic disease or about parasites. So I think there are places that that we can be helpful. Um, I was recently listening to a talk by Atul Gawande on of life care and on mm-hmm. quality of life and they talked about how uncomfortable it is for human doctors to talk about end of life with their patients and how it's hard to even bring it up and i'm like you know who brings up human end of life with us all the time our, our human clients as they're putting their pets down right, so right. is this potentially an entry where we can help our human colleagues so so i think that that's true the vast majority of the time but not always right definitely so let's talk about some ways that if we recognize some of these negative behaviors, mm-hmm. whether it's in the didactic portion of vet school, in the mm-hmm. clinics, in in the practice, in the hospital, what mm-hmm. we can do to make it better. So uh, again, since we're talking about vet school, a yeah. little more specifically here, I want to use the example of you're in clinics and mm-hmm. you're either working with a technician or a nurse or um, a resident intern, even even the attending clinician, and and they are berating you. Maybe you made a, a slight mistake, and you know from horror stories that I've heard from other friends in, in in upper classes, they will get yelled at and 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 made to feel like scum of scum of the earth more or less. Yeah. Uh, which unfortunately I don't understand why, but it's, it almost seems like the norm, um, at least in in the clinic setting, some some of the time. What can we do to address that? and uh, make ourselves feel better about it and then maybe to make a change in in that person's behavior so it doesn't happen again. Yeah. So I think there are two parts to this question. So one is individually, what do you do? And then two is what can we be doing to try and change the system? Because, you know, this is obviously going on to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so one individually, I think the first step is to do self-care. So what we know is when you're going through a strong emotion, your amygdala is highly, highly active. And if we can name what's going on, describe what's going on and explain it to ourselves, we start deactivating our amygdala. So actually naming, saying, I'm being verbally abused right now. Mm -hmm. This is what's going on. I'm being bullied and this is not appropriate. Helps depersonalize it in a lot of ways and helps take some of the sting out of what's going on. So also having what I call boundaries. So Mm -hmm. understanding when something happens to you that is negative, we have two potential responses to it. One is to have an emotional response, which is natural. You're going to have that Mm -hmm. emotional response. Now, you have the choice whether to sit with that emotional response and let it stew or decide to take some action or decide whether you don't take an action. And and that's where we get into boundary setting. So you might say, in my case, okay, well, that professor yelled at me and I didn't feel like that was appropriate. If this happens three times, I'm going to go ahead and go talk to their supervisor. But if it doesn't happen three times, you know what? I'm just going to put up with it. Mm -hmm. Or if it crosses the line and I'm being physically harmed, you know, I need to go talk with somebody about it. And that takes some of the emotional power away from it, because then you have these logical lines where you say, I have decided already these are the actions I'm going to take 
based on what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have to sit here and just take it. I have some choices in the matter, and I think that helps. Definitely. When it comes to the system, it's really challenging. And in the human medical field, they haven't found the right answer yet. There was one study out of UCLA where they spent 13 years trying to change this environment. Holy moly. And they saw minor improvements by having places that students could report it and trying to teach all the students and personnel how to deal with mistreatment. But they saw only minor changes in what was going on. And they felt like they needed to work toward changing the medical culture in general and making more systemic changes and giving them alternative behaviors. So not just how do we deal with this and tell people not to do it, what can we show them to do instead? And I think that right. fits into so much of what we know about training our animal friends as well, right? Right, right. And I wonder too if it, if it, an influence on this in terms of fostering whatever is existing in, in the workplace, be it, again, the clinic, the hospital, the classroom. And I'm thinking about what happens after a negative experience happens to yeah. you. Normally for me and, and for most of my friends, we go to our other friends, to our yeah. support systems, and we vent about it. Yeah. And boy, does it feel good to vent. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's very healthy, and, and that's what you should be doing. Definitely don't bottle it up. That's, mm-hmm. I think, number one. My worry with that is that if there's no action on the back end of that, mm-hmm. if there's nothing that you're doing to attempt to try to change the system mm-hmm. or to a- address whatever issue it was with the person that was involved, mm-hmm. that talking and venting about that then just encourages more and more and we don't really figure out it's just a a vicious cycle of of it going on and on what are your thoughts in terms of that yeah yeah so i agree so one i do think it's like you said i think it's healthy to vent and kind of deal with your own emotions so i don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing in and of itself Mm -hmm. so long as you don't use the venting as an excuse not to take action. I do think I have to disagree with you a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I think there's this idea that it's a good thing to go back to that person directly and to confront them. And there are some certain situations where that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It is rarely going to be helpful or beneficial to you to go to an individual professor and confront them about their behavior. I I hate to say it, but it's just true Um, because they are in a position of power over you. This is likely something they've done multiple times um, and you're not going to be able to make a good case. And part of it is that the reason they are there and the reason that this behavior has been allowed to go on is because the system allows it to go on. Mm -hmm. So I think my challenge to veterinary students and to academia in general is how can we change the system so that this is not something that's tolerated. And also to think about for the sake of our clinicians, why is this happening? You Mm -hmm. know, they're also under stress. Is that part of what's contributing to this kind of behavior? What do they understand about teaching and what's helpful and not helpful? Because again, we're learning maybe this behavior from them. They learned it from somebody else. So who's to say if given another way of doing it that they might not necessarily change the way that they're teaching or if they appreciated how harmful that could potentially be maybe they would take a different approach so my personal opinion is that can we start collecting these incidences can we create an anonymous reporting system Um, ucla started a system where they 
collected reports on whether students felt respected by certain clinicians. So instead of looking for the negative, they started looking for an absence of positive feedback (laughs) to try and help figure out which clinicians were maybe causing this. And it seems to be, at least in human medicine, residents are the number one source of this abuse. Then um, clinical faculty with nurses being a significantly less portion, but third on the list. So it's about 20 over 20 percent for the first two groups and then seven percent for nurses interesting um, as a source for the the students in the curriculum interesting yeah so talking about changing the system yeah what tips do you have i know that in vet school you're there for a short four years it's probably difficult to make a major systemic change in that short period of time and even though when you're in the in the trenches it does not seem like a short period of time but in the grand scheme of things four is not that Mm -hmm. long what tips do you have that the veterinary student or even the new graduate can do to help make a difference. Absolutely. So I try and focus sometimes on, on again, positive reinforcement. I love behavior and I love taking Mm -hmm. some of our techniques from behavior because we're just big animals. And I think that that can really help. What are we doing to positively reinforce those people in our schools who are doing the right things? You know, are we calling those people out? Are we showing them as an example to their colleagues as someone who is a really effective teacher um, and someone who is avoiding these kind of of techniques? So I, I think that's one part of it. Again, I think the school needs to have very clear zero tolerance policies. So I think students can bind together. We know that in medical schools, it's over 50% of students are experiencing this. So Hmm. if I think veterinary students compiled their experiences and what they've been going through and brought that to the the leadership at the school, I think it would be very hard to ignore. Um, and we know that when those stories are compiled, you might think that that's, those are going to be small, little piddling incidences. Um, but 67% of those cases were designated as severe cases of harassment wow. um, by the, the group that did that study. So I think it's a bigger problem that a lot of places realize. And again, I don't know, there haven't been studies done at the veterinary school level. I would love to help do those right. studies. Go for it. Um, but I, I think that that would be a good impetus for us to start changing things. That's great. Another question I have that I just thought of relating to all this is, have you found, at least in your research or in research of others in the medical school setting, is there any gender differences here in terms of who is either receiving the the negative experiences? And on the flip side, are there any gender differences as to who is who perpetuating. is who, who right who's perpetuating these these negative toxic behaviors absolutely so there is data on who is reporting them so we do seem to to find both in a study of human medical students as well as in a study of veterinarians in practice out of New Zealand that females tend to report more bullying and actually experience more bullying the mm-hmm. study out of New Zealand actually looked at uh, things that had actually been done to people not just Mm -hmm. what what they reported so um and that makes me worry that there may be a bigger problem in veterinary medicine and in veterinary schools than there may be in human medical schools since we have an even higher percentage of women um, than elsewhere right one of the other interesting things is in a lot of cases of aggression and bullying especially in the study of veterinary practices is a lot of aggression is very subtle Mm -hmm. this doesn't necessarily character into the the medical school studies since those were a little bit more obvious 
but at least in practice, exclusion, click forming, um, withholding important information from people that they need to do their job, not giving them enough responsibilities. So if you're a new grad and they know that you should be able to do a spay, but they're not giving you any of the spays, that kind of thing. Those are all forms of aggression, but Mm -hmm. it's really hard to go to your boss and say, this is what so-and-so is doing to me. Right. Because it's it's a lack of a behavior instead of an assertive negative behavior. Mm-hmm. So I think it's something we need to be more aware of and we need to be looking at um, both in our practices as well as in our communities in vet school. Right. And I think one of the, the main take-homes that I'm taking away from this is something that relates back to all of our discussions on wellness and depression and, and the rising suicide rate in, in our in our profession. And I think that is just awareness of what's going on yeah. and, and and the importance of communicating about it and talking about it with our peers and our colleagues. And I think that's a major player here is that a right now we've obviously addressed that there's an issue and we just need to be talking more about it and, and make it known that it is more than okay to be talking about this, that by talking about it, you're not weak. Uh, you are not abnormal. You are not uh, the weakling in in the group or in the class or, or what have you. Um, so I just I'm thinking to myself that that that's very important. Yeah, and I'm so glad to see what you've been doing to to have folks talk about their experiences with depression or anxiety. When I first realized this about myself, I was terrified mm-hmm. because I said, if I come out and I'm starting to even talk about this stuff, like, hey, I'm a jerk, right? right. Like, who's going to hire me right. if I'm talking about this stuff? But I think it's so important for us to show, hey, I recognize that I have this tendency, and I'm able to work on it and to try and change myself for the better and to help other people as well, I think that shows a lot of strength. And I I hope that in coming out and talking about this, it helps people feel like they can talk about it too. Because I can't tell you the number of veterinarians who've come to me and said, oh my gosh, me too. I was the the vet who made somebody cry. What what do I do about this? How How do I do better? Right, definitely. Okay, so my last question for you and kind of switching topics a little bit, I'm going to take us a little bit outside vet school. So we're past graduation. What have you noticed in new graduates, new veterinarians, um, even young but seasoned veterinarians that are new to, to your practice or any practice that you've been in? What behaviors have you seen in them that you could let us know to watch out for, for what, for when we enter uh, enter the real world, if you will. Um, I think it would be really good to know of things that we may be developing that we may not know we are. Mm-hmm. Just again, from what we've been talking about today, about some of the behaviors and the 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 norms of of the clinic setting in vet school that may not be healthy out past vet school. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing I've learned is that so much civility is tied into our expectations of each other. And whenever you go out into practice or whenever you even change practices, all of a sudden there's this whole new potential set of expectations because you're in a new place with a new culture and especially coming out of vet school, right? You've been taught this gold standard medicine and that's what you expect and that's what you want. And you probably have certain expectations too of what your team is going to be able to do for you. But those expectations may not fit Mm -hmm. what is really happening in the practice. And if you are unconscious of that, it's going to create a lot of tension. And so now when I moved to my second practice, 
I straight up told my team, like, there may be a little bit of tension here while we figure each other out and you know what to expect from me and I know what to expect from you and I know what the rules are here. Right. And I think it also shows why an understanding of business is so important because if the expectations aren't written down anywhere, like none of the expectations are written down in terms of training or, you know, what's the technician's role versus what's the receptionist's role versus what does the veterinarian do? It adds to more conflict because everybody's assuming it's somebody else's job. Right. So um, so that would be my number one thing is to understand that there's going to be some conflict from the beginning and try and assess what your expectations are. Like, why was that conflict there? Why are you feeling upset? It's probably because you expected someone to do something and they didn't. Right. And figure out if your expectations are reasonable or unreasonable given your uh, the practice that you're in. Right. And I would imagine, too, at least something that just came to my mind when you said that is that like you said, we are taught the gold standard in vet mm-hmm. school. So I would imagine that once we're out, if we see something that's different, we may think that that is the wrong way to do mm-hmm. it. And I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe some of this tension and conflict comes from the 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 new veterinarian thinking that their way is the right way because that's what they were taught. But in reality, my even though my way is different does not mean your way is wrong there could be two right ways to doing this absolutely and there are actually practices out there that intentionally hire veterinarians from different vet schools so that they can learn different ways of handling the same cases Mm -hmm. because sometimes approach a doesn't work i I always like to joke i think the orthopedists do too that if there are multiple ways of handling the same problem it's probably because none of them work particularly well and so you want to have a couple different tools at your disposal to to get the right one for that particular pet. Um, And I like to use curiosity. Mm -hmm. That is, there's a a book out of Harvard called Difficult Conversations that's research-based. And they found that almost regardless of whatever type of difficult conversation you're having, starting with genuine curiosity for why somebody is doing what they're doing or what they're feeling is a really great way to diffuse tension Mm -hmm. and to get to the heart of where the differences are that are creating conflict. So say you go into that situation and they do something differently there. Like for me, it was, you know, having a really kind of standard protocol for anesthesia and trying to make sure pets weren't under anesthesia for significantly longer than Mm -hmm. two hours. Asking the technician, hey, can you tell me a little bit more about why that is? What are your experiences that have, have led you guys to have this protocol here? Or, you know, the other doctors at the practice. And she shared with me, pets who passed away because they were under anesthesia for a really long time and that was very emotionally traumatic for them Mm -hmm. and I'll be honest it was much better when we switched and we're kind of doing the same thing so my technicians knew what to expect from our anesthetic protocols and when we got patients um you know, up on time, you know, often we would then split up dentals and stage them. Our patients recovered much, much better. So again, I think starting with curiosity and not blame is a really great way to to start those difficult conversations. Absolutely. All right. So to wrap us up, another thought that, that I had is going back to stress and aggression that we can sometimes see in vet school, mm-hmm. be that uh, in, let's say your didactic years, you're studying for a test and you're not getting any sleep, which don't do that, please sleep. Uh, And you just get so stressed out and everyone's really mad at each other and no one's having fun anymore. And that just, again, kind of just keeps going and going and going. And again, this kind of vicious cycle. And then I would imagine in the clinic too that people are getting stressed out, uh, very much more sleep deprived Mm -hmm. and just not having a good time. And like I talked with Becky in our last podcast that 
both positive and negative behavior is contagious. And probably mm-hmm. the negative behavior is much more contagious than yep. the positive, unfortunately. What have you found in terms of that relationship or any correlation between what happens when we get stressed out, which is obviously a very common part uh, and normal part of, of our work mm-hmm. and how that can lead to aggression and just being mean to each other. Absolutely. And there's actually this cool study in rats where they stimulated their fight reflex and that led to the production of more cortisol. Mm. But also if they shut off that center and they gave the rats more cortisol, they also were more likely to fight. So there's kind of this cycle Mm. where if we're stressed, we're more likely to be mean to each other. And then that causes more stress. So we've got to find these ways to break the cycle. I loved your uh, podcast with Dr. McVitie where she talked about this negativity Mm -hmm. that we keep talking about how bad veterinary medicine is and creating more and more negativity around it. So, So we do need to take care of ourselves, break that cycle of stress and be kind to each other so that we, we, really take take care of our whole practice because it makes life better for all of us definitely so is there any one specific tip that you would have to to be that bigger person and try to break the cycle if you're witnessing that yeah Um, i'm going to steal a tip from dr ernie ward and that's going to be if somebody's made a mistake and they're falling in the grass let it go (laughs) if they're about to fall over the cliff go ahead and stop them and tell them what's going on. But there are going to be those things that happen in practice that aren't perfect, Mm -hmm. but they're okay. And nobody's getting hurt and nobody's getting harmed and it's fixable Um, versus the things that are happening where something's going to die. And you got to kind of learn to to figure out the difference between those two things so that when you choose the times to interact or confront somebody mm-hmm. you you know why you're doing it and you know that it's important absolutely couldn't agree more all right so before we wrap up i want to give a quick shout out to your podcast like with dr uh dr ernie ward and with becky who we just had that podcast on uh about veterinary tacticians which was fantastic i'd encourage you to check that out but um i'm such a big fan of of the three of your podcast um Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so we have the Veterinary Viewfinder, and our goal is to to tackle tough topics that other folks maybe aren't comfortable talking about and to give a variety of perspectives. So that's always our hope. We don't have a vet student yet, though, so we, well. you know, you never know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but I will say, being a podcaster myself, you you all need to go ahead and leave Seth a review and give him some good feedback because it is highly motivating and really enjoyable to hear what your listeners think and feel about you uh, when you're you're spending all this time and hard work putting the podcast together so thank you make thank sure you to very give much. some props and where can we find your podcast so it is uh at veterinary viewfinder on facebook and at vet viewfinder on twitter and we're on all the different mediums we're on itunes we're on spotify we're on soundcloud so so pretty much anywhere you're going to find podcasts you're going to find us terrific thank you all right so my very last question i promise and I always forget to ask uh, my guests on, but um, I think you are going to have a very good recommendation because you've already mentioned a few, and that is uh, books. What's your number one recommendation for a book veterinary students should read? I'm so glad you asked, Seth. <laughs> so I'm a huge book dork, and I read about 100 to 200 books a year, a little less this year because of the baby. But I gave my mentee Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. 
And I think it is one of the most important books for veterinary students because you are daring greatly by being veterinary students and going out into the big wide world of veterinary medicine where you're going to be saving lives, but also scared that you're not going to. And so you are going to be daring greatly and you need to accept that you are walking into the arena and being able to take the criticism of folks who have not been brave enough to go into the arena. And that is what that book is all about. So that's that's the one that I would highly recommend. If there's one you're going to walk out of at school having read, it's going to be Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Awesome. Well, Dr. Courtney, thank you so much. This was amazing. Um, amazing topic and amazing insight from you. So um, definitely a lot of great things to, to think about as we are going through veterinary school and as the end of veterinary school and especially out in practice uh, when we get there. So thank you very much again. Thank you so much for having me, Seth. And I hope you get some good sleep tonight for the rest of clinics. I will. Thanks again. All right. Bye. Once more, I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Sydney Courtney for joining me on the podcast today. Please be sure to check out the Veterinary Viewfinder podcast that is hosted by Dr. Courtney, Dr. Ernie Ward, and RVT Becky Mosser to hear more hot topics like this one in Vet Med. And lastly, thank you so much for listening to the Vet School Unleashed podcast. For resources and more information about the podcast, please check us out at www.vetschoolunleashed.com or find me on Instagram or Facebook. You can also connect with me via email at seth at vetschoolunleashed.com. I'd love to hear any suggestions or topics that you'd like to hear us talk about and even reach out if you want to be on the podcast and share some insight of your own. And of course, if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again, and we will talk to you next time on Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM. Dissecting the DVM.